Um, tonight's reading comes from Acts chapter 6, verse 8 to chapter 8, verse 1. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. But they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, this fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Then the high priest asked Stephen, are these charges true? To this he replied, brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land I will show you. So he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. After the death of his father, God sent him to this land where you are now living. He gave him no inheritance here, not even enough ground to set his foot on. But God promised him that he and his descendants after him would possess the land, even though at that time Abraham had no child. God spoke to him in this way. For 400 years, your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and ill-treated. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, God said, and afterwards they will come out of that country and worship me in this place. Then he gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision, and Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him eight days after his birth. Later, Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob became the father of the 12 patriarchs. Because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt, but God was with him and rescued him from all his troubles. He gave Joseph wisdom and enabled him to gain the goodwill of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So Pharaoh made him ruler over Egypt and all his palace. Then a famine struck all Egypt and Canaan, bringing great suffering, and our ancestors could not find food. When Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our forefathers on their first visit. On their second visit, Joseph told his brothers who he was, and Pharaoh learned about Joseph's family. After this, Joseph sent for his father Jacob and his whole family, 75 in all. Then Jacob went down to Egypt, where he and our ancestors died. Their bodies were brought back to Shechem and placed in the tomb that Abraham had bought from the sons of Hamor at Shechem for a certain sum of money. As the time drew near for God to fulfill his promise to Abraham, the number of our people in Egypt had greatly increased. Then a new king to whom Joseph meant nothing came to power in Egypt. He dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our ancestors by forcing them to throw out their newborn babies so that they would die. At that time, Moses was born and he was no ordinary child. For three months he was cared for by his family. When he was placed outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him and brought him up as her own son. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. When Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his own people, the Israelites. He saw one of them being ill-treated by an Egyptian, so he went to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. The next day, Moses came upon two Israelites who were fighting. 
He tried to reconcile them by saying, men, you are brothers. Why do you want to hurt each other? But the man who was ill-treating the other pushed Moses aside and said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? When Moses heard this, he fled to Midian where he settled as a foreigner and had two sons. After 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to Moses in the flames of a burning bush in the desert near Mount Sinai. When he saw this, he was amazed at the sight. As he went over to get a closer look, he heard the Lord say, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses trembled with fear and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have indeed seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and have come down to set them free. Now come, I will send you back to Egypt. This is the same Moses they had rejected with the words, who made you ruler and judge? He was sent to be their ruler and deliverer by God himself through the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He led them out of Egypt and performed wonders and signs in Egypt at the Red Sea and for 40 years in the wilderness. This is the Moses who told the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your own people. He was in the assembly in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our ancestors, and he received living words to pass on to us. But our ancestors refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. They told Aaron, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who led us out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. That was the time they made an idol in the form of a calf. They brought sacrifices to it and reveled in what their own hands had made. But God turned away from them and gave them over to the worship of the sun, moon, and stars. This agrees with what is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings for 40 years in the wilderness, people of Israel? You have taken up the tabernacle of Molech and the star of your God, Rephan, the idols you made to worship. Therefore, I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our ancestors had the tabernacle of the covenant law with them in the wilderness. It had been made as God directed Moses, according to the pattern he had seen. After receiving the tabernacle, our ancestors under Joshua brought it with them when they took the land from the nations God drove out before them. It remained in the land until the time of David, who enjoyed God's favor and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. However, the Most High does not live in houses made by human hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? You stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you've betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was given through angels, but have not obeyed it. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep and Saul approved of their killing him. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem 
and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. This is God's word. My name's Phil. I'm the associate minister. Let me pray. Lord God, please would you give us understanding minds that can grasp the truth of your word. And please would you give us believing hearts that we might leave here confident that you are with us and you are mighty to save. Amen. Okay, got a quiz for you. Um, Excuse the sports um, theme to it, but all I want you to do is tell me who wins the majority of the games played in these stadiums. This stadium, who wins the majority of the games played here? Barcelona, very good. That's the, the new camp. Who wins the majority of the games played there? Australia, yeah. Don't sound so disappointed. It's, uh, you can speak positively about the Aussies. The, that's the MCG, Australia Cricket. Um, what about that? Who wins the majority of the games played there? England? No. Ireland? No. Anybody know where that is? New Zealand. That's Eden Park. So the statistics are, for the new camp, Barcelona have won 75% of the games played there. The MCG, Australia, have won 60% of the games played there. At Eden Park, the All Blacks have not lost a game since 1994. It is just a simple fact of sports that the home team usually wins, true across basically every sport. Premier League, uh, opposition teams only win 30% of the games. Uh, Somehow, the team just, they feel bigger. They feel stronger, they feel more confident when they're on their home turf. Next week, the same team, they're against the opposition in an away fixture. They just, somehow they feel a little bit smaller, a little less sure of themselves, uh, intimidated even, less confident that they're going to win. Okay, so where is God's home ground? Where is God at his best? Where can you be confident God will win? Where do you go if you want to be near God and have access to his powers? Uh, Where should you be if if you want to be really sure God's going to nail it and answer your prayers? Where should a Christian go if you want to be most confident of God's protection, God's provision and God's power? Let me show you God's home ground. The next slide. There you go. The whole earth. That's the message of Act 7. The whole earth, the whole cosmos is God's home ground. It's not Jerusalem. It's not Rome. It's not Canterbury. It's everywhere. In other words, there's no such thing as an away fixture for God where he feels a little bit less sure of himself. He is the God of the whole world. The whole world's his home ground and his holy place. Or you could put it in more theological language. The Dutch theologian and prime minister, Abraham Kuyper, said, there is not one square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. And the message we're going to see tonight from Acts 7 is that the Lord Jesus Christ is equally present and equally powerful in the Market Tavern pub and in your office, your halls of residence, your home, as he is in this building. 
And he is just as likely to answer your prayers prayed at your desk as in the chair you're sitting tonight here. He is the God of the whole earth. He is as powerful in Lahore as in London. Now, I guess that uh, for those of us who call ourselves Christians, the majority here tonight, that's, it's less of a paradigm shift to believe that than it was for the Christians in Acts, in Acts 7. But it would have an equally revolutionary impact on our lives if we actually grasped it. Because if you grasp this, well, then you can live boldly and courageously for Jesus, wherever you are. You can be a follower of Jesus and a witness to Jesus in 21st century London and not be intimidated. Grasp this and some of the confidence we express as we sing on a Sunday night, we might be able to carry with us. Some of that confidence about God might be carried with us as we go out on a Monday. Okay, we're back in the book of Acts after a little break. This is the first century historian Luke tracking the history of the Jesus movement as it exploded across the Roman world. The, the, if you like, the mission statement, the, the programmatic statement is found in Acts 1.8 as Jesus declares uh, these words, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now the impetus that drives the Christians out of Jerusalem to take the gospel to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The impetus, well, it's actually, it's persecution. You see at the end of our reading, Acts 8.1, on that day a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. That was the impetus for the spread of the gospel. But the theology which Stephen teaches in Acts chapter 7 means that being driven out of Jerusalem is not the disaster which kills the infant Christian movement, but rather is the catalyst for its spread across the Mediterranean. See, Stephen teaches God is not tied to the temple in Jerusalem. And so when Christians are removed from Jerusalem, it's not like a plant cut off from its roots. It's like seeds scattered to fertile soil. And they'll grow and they'll bear fruit. Now, um, Acts 7 is the first of many trials we'll see over the, the coming months that happen in the book of Acts. And it's the trial that ends with the death of the first Christian martyr, Stephen. But the focus you'll have seen is not on his death, but on his defense. It's actually the longest recorded speech in the whole book of Acts, which gives you something of an indication of its importance. And structurally, it is a trial, so we'll look at the charge, the defense, and the verdict. But although that's its structure, its subject, its central theme is the temple, the presence of God. Right, let's get into it. Firstly, the charge, the charge. Blasphemy against God's place and God's word. So we met, um, we met Stephen in... Um, the beginning of chapter 6, he's one of the seven deacons. They were the godly young men who were tasked with looking after Christian widows so the apostles could focus on prayer and preaching of God's words. Chapter 6, verse 4 told us that. 
But like all followers of Jesus, when he gets a chance, he wants to speak about Jesus. And it turns out he's really rather good at it. So we'll pick it up at chapter 6 and verse 8. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. But they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. He is a man full of the Spirit of God, and that brings him into opposition with those who resist the purposes of God. Verse 11, then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we've heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, this fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. Now, what do we notice here? His, his trial really echoes the trial of Jesus in that there are false witnesses and a charge of blasphemy, which is what brought Jesus before this same set of religious leaders. Uh, verse 11, you'll have seen, he's accused of speaking against Moses and against God. And then verse 13, you see, they, they then start talking about the law. Uh, Moses is kind of the shorthand for the law of God because it was through Moses that the law, the Old Testament, the, the, the Hebrew scriptures, the, the first part of them were given. And so they would refer to, uh, they would say it's an offense against Moses to speak against the law. And then verse 13 also shows that the against God had to do with Stephen's comments about this holy place. And then as, uh, as we heard in the reading, um, it, it's all about the temple. Now it was considered blasphemy to speak against the temple because it was God's place. It was considered blasphemy to speak against the law because it was God's words. So that's why the charge is blasphemy. Okay? So what's Stephen doing? Well, he's probably repeating what Jesus had said in John chapter 2. Uh, look at these words in John 2. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days. But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Now, neither Jesus nor Stephen were disparaging the Jewish religion. Rather, they were pointing out that Jesus fulfilled the temple. He was the true temple. See, the claim at the heart of Christianity is that Jesus is God in human flesh. Jesus is where you go if you want to meet, encounter the living God, the true temple. We no longer have to go to a special place. We come to a special person when we want to meet with God. God's presence and God's power, once Jesus has come, they're not tied to a place you go to sacrifice and pray. They're tied to a person, Jesus Christ. And now that he's arrived, the temple that pointed towards him, that was, was there to help the people understand what Jesus would be like, well, the bricks and mortar, they just don't, they don't matter anymore. It's just, it's silly, to be honest, to obsess about them when you've got Jesus there. 
It's lovely having um, our American interns, Elijah and Gabby. Elijah was uh, leading the music for us tonight. And this time last year, they applied to, to come and do the internship here. And we had application form with lots of words and some smiling pictures. Americans always have really good pictures. I've noticed this. Um, uh, uh, nice pictures and, 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 and words. And if, if anybody in the staff is saying, well, who are these, uh, these two Americans coming to, to join the staff? Said, well, if you want to know about them, come here and show them the application form. They can read their words and their American, American spellings, and they can uh, see the pictures. But once they've arrived, you'd say, and you say, oh, who are these American interns? I'd really like to meet them. Oh, well, if you want to meet them, you have to come to the office and, and read this form I have and look at these pictures. You know, well, why don't you just go and talk to them? I mean, they're there. That was the whole point of them sending in the form and the photo was so that they could come and we could meet them. The temple was always just a picture of God meeting with his people. Once Jesus has arrived, the real God come down to us, well, why on earth would you obsess about the bricks when you've got the reality? And that's, that's really Jesus' point, and that's what Stephen's been teaching. Now, the religious leaders, they don't have a lot of time for Jesus, so Stephen's defense doesn't really go there. Instead, he goes for what they do accept or think they accept, which is the Old Testament, the first part of the Bible. And he goes through the history of Israel to show them two things. Firstly, while God commanded his people to build and worship in the temple, God's never been tied to a place. And secondly, hey, it's not Stephen who's ignoring the word of God, but the religious leaders. Let's work through uh, the defense so God's word shows God's not tied to a place. Look, we've not got time to work through this in detail. But basically, Stephen runs through four key stages in Israelite history. And his point with the first three is to show that at critical moments, God met with people way away from the promised land. God was never tied to the promised land. Uh, firstly, Abraham, verses 2 to 8. We'll just look at verses 2 to 3. Um, the high priest asked Stephen, are these charges true? To this he replied, brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land I will show you. Abraham is a pagan man living in a pagan land, Mesopotamia, far to the east of Israel. And God meets him. And God calls him there. It's not that Abraham uh, happened to be traveling and he, his travels took him into the promised land. And when he was there, God appeared to him. No, God called him when he was still in a pagan land. Secondly, Joseph, verses 9 to 16. Verse 9, because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt. But God was with him. Now, Joseph was born in Israel, Canaan, as it was then called, one of the 12 sons of Jacob. But his brothers hated him and sold him into slavery, and so he was taken to Egypt. But the verse ends, verse 9 ends, but God was with him. And six times in the next few verses, the word Egypt is stated. God was with him, and he was in Egypt. And while he was in Egypt, and in Egypt, and Egypt... And did I tell you where he was? Amazing. It was Egypt. Who'd have thought? It's 
Do you get the point? God was with him in Egypt. For four centuries, God's people would then travel down to Egypt. We're told Jacob and all his family went there because God had purposes for his people outside the promised land. He was with Joseph and he called Jacob out of the promised land to live in Egypt. It's in Egypt that God builds the nation of Israel from a family to a people. Thirdly, God um, met with Moses and was mighty through Moses far away from Israel. So God spoke to Abraham in Mesopotamia. God was with Joseph in Egypt and God met with Moses and was mighty through Moses far away from Egypt, uh, far away from Israel. So Stephen divides uh, the life of Moses, who is really the key figure in his speech, into three 40-year periods. And as he does so, he really makes two points from it. And after accounting his early years in Egypt, up until he had to flee, having killed this Egyptian slave driver, um, he, Stephen tells us that then God met with Moses. And where does he meet with him? But in a faraway place called Midian, in the burning bush. We'll dive in at verse 30. After 40 years, actually verse 29 probably helps us. When Moses heard this, he fled to Midian, where he settled as a foreigner. And had two sons. After 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to Moses in the flames of a burning bush in the desert near Mount Sinai. When he saw this, he was amazed at the sight. He went over to get a closer look and he heard the Lord say, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Moses trembled with fear and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground. This is not Israel, but it is holy ground because God is present there. And then having commissioned Moses at the burning bush to lead the people out of Egypt, God works mighty miracles through Moses. So God meets with Moses in Midian and God works mighty miracles through Moses in the wilderness. Verse 34, I have indeed seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and have come down to set them free. Now come, I will send you back to Egypt. This is the same Moses they'd rejected with the words, who made you ruler and judge? He was sent to be their ruler and deliverer by God himself through the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He led them out of Egypt and performed wonders and signs in Egypt at the Red Sea and for 40 years in the wilderness. He devastated the superpower Egypt with 10 plagues that broke them. He split the Red Sea at God's command so the people walked through on dry land between walls of water. And for 40 years in the desert, through Moses, God rained down food from the sky and made rocks gush with water so they would live. And notice in verse 36, the stress. He performed wonders and signs in Egypt, at the Red Sea, and in the wilderness. In other words, Moses encountered God's presence and experienced God's power far, far, far away from the promised land. Fourth part of the history uh, jumps ahead to bring us to the temple itself. Verse 45. Verse 45. 
So verse 44 tells us that they had the kind of portable version of the temple in the wilderness, the tabernacle. And then 45, after receiving the tabernacle, our ancestors under Joshua brought it with them. And when they took the land from the nations, God drove out before them. It remained in the land until the time of David, who enjoyed God's favor and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. However, the Most High does not live in houses made by human hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? Now verse 49 is taken from Isaiah chapter 66. But the very same point is even made by King Solomon as he dedicates the temple in 1 Kings 8. He says, look, the God who creates the vastness of the universe, let's not think for a minute that he's actually contained in this building. He's not limited to one particular place on earth. Now, neither Solomon back then nor Stephen in his trial are criticizing the temple. God told them to build the temple. What they're criticizing is the pride and the misunderstanding of the religious leaders. They are acting as if God is tied to this little place, this building in Jerusalem, as if they own God, as if they control him, as if God is is the pet God at the beck and call of the, the religious establishment in Israel, as if, well, if we can keep you away from our temple, we can keep you away from God. I'm a... Uh, holding out for the day when my boys are old enough to actually watch movies that I want to watch um, in that um, unselfish way of parenting. Uh, It's still a couple of years before we get to Star Wars and the Marvel movies, but um, it's closer now than it was. Um, But for the moment, I'm trapped in a sort of mind-numbing death loop of Disney cartoons. Um, Other cartoons are also available. But uh, there are, however, some highlights. There are some highlights. And last weekend, they were introduced to Aladdin, the proper one with Robin Williams as the genie. Genius. I could almost break into song, but um, (laughs) I won't. Um, It is so good, though. But uh, there are two things everybody knows about genies. You did pretty poorly in the quiz at the start, by the way. But I'm guessing that everybody knows the two key things about genies. They give you three wishes. And the genie is controlled by whoever has the lamp. Exactly. Now, it was an act, I knew you'd find it impossible not to say, it was an act of immense, incomprehensible kindness for God to say, look, build this temple building. And I want you to understand I love you and I want to be with you. So to help you get that, I'm going to basically almost tie myself to this building and say, look, when you come here, I'll meet with you. When you pray to this temple, I'll answer your prayers. It was a sign, a symbol that God wanted to be with his people, that God wanted to love them and bless them, that they would always have access to him. But throughout their history, the Israelites were tempted to treat the temple as a genie's lamp and the great God of the universe as if he was their little genie, as if the temple contained God and they controlled him because they had the temple. And Stephen repeats a warning, a condemnation God has issued against the religious leaders again and again for hundreds of years. Stop treating the God who made the whole earth as if he's your little pet genie. 
And stop treating this building as if it contains God. You don't control him and you can't contain him. You are in his hands. He is never in your hands. God is not a genie. Now the truth is the religious leaders would probably have, well they've had to agree with everything Stephen said so far because all he's really doing is recounting the history of Genesis and, and Exodus and Joshua and 2 Samuel and 1 Kings and 1 Chronicles and quoting from the prophets like Amos and, and Isaiah. But now he turns to apply his lesson. If you like, the defense is over. And he says, actually, it's my turn to prosecute, and you're in the dock. You see, Stephen has been subtly showing the religious leaders, look, you've missed a truth that's been there throughout the history of Israel. And you, you're actually, you're missing something massive about God that's always been there. You're out of step with the truth. You're out of step with your own history. But there is one sense in which they are absolutely true children of their forefathers. And that is in their disobedience, in their refusal to submit to God and to obey his anointed leader. I wonder if you, you saw how that theme, it just sounded like an ominous drumbeat through the speech. Just peppered in, verse 9, the patriarchs, oh, it was the patriarchs themselves, Jacob's children who sold Joseph into slavery. Verse 25 to 27, the Israelites, they rejected Moses when he tried to save them. Verse 35, the Israelites rejected God's appointed ruler and deliverer. Verse 39, even after splitting the Red Sea, the, the people refused to obey Moses. Verse 43, even after you built the temple, you turned it into a shrine for worshipping pagan gods, which meant God had to send you into exile. And that history of rejection that runs through the Old Testament, that history of rejecting God's appointed, anointed leaders is about to reach its climax. Verse 51, as Stephen says, you stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. That is not set aside for God. You're just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You have received the law that was given through angels, but have not obeyed it. You are willfully blind to God's word. You stubbornly refuse to turn around when God's word says, go the other way. Your ancestors rejected and killed the prophets, the prophets who, who predicted the righteous one would come. And now you have killed that righteous one. You are true Israelites in that sense. You're right to say you've God's law, but that does not matter unless you obey God's law. His point should now be clear. Do not think you have the presence of God because you have his rituals. Structure and ritual mean nothing if you do not obey God. If a religious institution is not faithful to God, then God's presence is not there. Ritual in the place counts for nothing unless there is obedience to the person. 
yeah, wrestling with Acts 7 this week as I followed the news from General Synod, it was poignant and desperately concerning to realize this. It surely applies too to religious institutions and denominations in our context. Ritual, structure, history, they count for nothing unless there is obedience to God today. And so whatever we do, we must obey God today. Well, the response of the religious leaders to Stephen is, it's, it's a kind of bestial savagery, to be honest. As the rage erupts, verse 54, when the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he said this, he fell asleep and Saul approved of their killing. It's less an execution, it's more a lynching, to be honest. But notice two things. Firstly, Stephen dies like Jesus, just as he was uh, accused like Jesus, so he dies like Jesus. Like Jesus, he prays for the forgiveness of his murderers, and like Jesus, he commits his spirit to God as he dies. Secondly, this is the only time in the New Testament that Jesus is described as standing in heaven rather than sitting as one who's finished his work. Odd that. What's going on? Well, I think he's described as standing because Jesus is, he's standing, he's ready to receive Stephen. He's come to the door of heaven, ready to receive his faithful martyr. There's something wonderful about Jesus standing in this passage. Rejected on earth, but he will be received into heaven. The passage ends with the church, like Stephen, driven out of the city. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. They're scattered far from the temple in Jerusalem. And as those traumatized young Christians, refugees now, fled their homes, they weren't only carrying the few possessions they managed to grab before the mob drove them out. They were also carrying with them a truth that would transform the world, the truth that Stephen had proclaimed to them, this truth. You can kick us out of Jerusalem, but we trust in Jesus, so you can never, ever cut us off from the presence, the power, and the protection of Almighty God. So what? I hope that's obvious. <laughs> if you trust in God... Then by the power, if you trust in Jesus, then by the power of his spirit, God is with you. Wherever you are and wherever you go, God is with you. Jesus is the temple, the presence of God. He is with you wherever you go by his spirit. The God who called Abraham in Ur, in Mesopotamia, the God who was with Joseph in pagan Egypt, the God who worked mighty miracles through Moses in the barren wilderness. That God is with you wherever you go tomorrow.
Now, pause. There is a particular sense in which we uh, enjoy the presence of God in a more intense way when we gather together as church, but it has nothing to do with the building or the location. And God is not more present in church. We just, there's a particular blessing and enjoyment of his presence. He's omnipresent. He's always everywhere. Wherever you are, he's with you. I don't know if you've ever had the experience of going to an away ground as a sports fan. It is quite, it can be quite a frightening thing. Really intimidating. Everyone chanting, singing abusive songs about your team, about people like you. You feel like you don't belong, like everybody's against you, and you're just hoping nobody notices that you shouldn't be there. For Bible-believing Christians, 21st century London can feel like an away fixture. It can feel like the crowd's against us, that the atmosphere's hostile and the chants, bigots, wrong side of history, no science, idiots. It can feel quite intimidating. Let's keep a sense of perspective. For most in London, you can be mocked and marginalized. In many parts of the world, Christians are beaten and imprisoned but still still we can feel intimidated and shrink and end up living timid little Christian lives where our our main prayers are that we stay healthy and comfortable and, and no one discovers that I'm a Christian lives that are far short of the adventure and the eternal significance that God calls each of us to lives that just make no real difference It's great to have Stan and Tasha interviewed. Send them and Edward all soon heading out for the long term to countries in North Africa and Central Asia where there are very few Christians and very serious consequences if you become a Christian. Where Christians are a statistical anomaly, an oddity. It would be easy for them to feel little intimidated it'd be easy for them to expect a little bit less from God after all it's not really his turf is it but they know the whole earth is God's home ground and they're going well they're going because Jesus commands us to take the gospel to people who don't know him but they're going with hope because they know Jesus is just as mighty to provide and to protect there as he is here. They need to know that, and so do you and I. We need to recognize the office, the pub, the home, the halls. When you're surrounded by secular colleagues or Muslim neighbors, that's not an away fixture. The whole earth is God's home ground, and he will win. The resurrection of Jesus Christ proves that history is in his hands and at the end, Jesus will reign. And the more we grasp that, the more confident we are that God is with us and God is mighty everywhere. Well, the more we'll live boldly and courageously wherever we are, confident that wherever we are, God is and he is for us. He is not the God of a few square meters in Jerusalem. He's the God who says, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. We're on his ground and we're living in his time. 
Some here are already living like that. And I want to call us all to join that adventure. It began in Acts 7, and it's an adventure that continues to this very day. God is with us. Let's live like it. Our Father God, we, we thank you and praise you for Stephen's courage. And we thank you for the glorious truth that accompanied those refugees driven out of Jerusalem, that wherever they were, you were. And you are mighty wherever you are. Help us to believe that, that we would live bold and courageous and joyful lives, confident that you are mighty in our day, in our city, for the glory of your son, Jesus. Amen.